Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. It can seem like world affairs are out of our control. Goodness, if we're honest, it can seem like the affairs of our mountain valley, our little town, our own home life can seem out of our control. Can I get an amen from mothers of small children? It was no different in the first century. Social upheaval and the turnover of empires could happen with regularity and the person on the street, I am sure, felt quite out of control. But what we see in the Bible, what we hear in this text from Paul this morning is that everywhere and always, God is at work. The God of the universe is exerting his will to bring about his plans and his saving intentions for a rebellious world. 
He calls apostles as heralds of his good news, and he sets apart saints to obey and proclaim a divine call, a call that finds at its center God's Son and our King, Jesus. And what heralds bring is news. In this case, good news of how God has always and will continue to shape the world. How does that happen practically, at ground level, in the spaces that we inhabit. As Paul turns from his magisterial first sentence in verses 1 to 7 that we looked at last week where he proclaimed the powerful news that Jesus is the King, he now addresses this question. He shows us the way forward to shape our families and our little town and our valley by making clear his two desires for the Romans. Rome was the epicenter of the Gentile world. The empire of Rome extended from present-day Great Britain, south across North Africa, east to Parthia, and north to present-day Germany. It was massive. It was one of the most far-reaching and impressive empires the world has ever known. And as Paul has already described, He has been called by God as an apostle to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of the name of Jesus among all Gentiles. And so it makes perfect sense that he would want to go to this place, which he had not yet been, which represents the center and crowning achievements of the Gentile world, doesn't it? For if the good news can be planted and strengthened in the heart of the empire, it can then become the lifeblood of that empire being pumped to the far reaches of the Gentile world. That's what Paul knows. And so with this in mind, it is no surprise that Paul's first thought, after his introductory remarks, is that of thanksgiving. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Paul's heart is overflowing with thanksgiving because of the mere reality of the church in Rome. And this is no surprise because Paul is a church planter. I mean, his heart beats for the raising up of local fellowships of followers of Jesus that will proclaim the good news of the king. And while he's been unable to get to Rome to plant a church as he has in so many other cities, he takes great delight in and prayerfully expresses his thanksgiving to God that a church has been planted in Rome and is acting as a beacon of hope. How do we know it is a beacon of hope? Because it says news of their faith is being reported in all the world. Now, that certainly is probably a little bit of hyperbole on Paul's part, but only a little bit. For as we've discussed, Rome was the epicenter of the Gentile world. And the faith of this devoted detachment of disciples in Rome would certainly garner attention. Douglas Moo says that people in the Roman capital had bowed the knee not to Caesar, but to the Lord Jesus is something that would be widely known and perhaps highlighted by any missionary working elsewhere in or outside of the empire. And I want you to note something about what Paul says here. Paul is noting that such an impact is made by the mere presence of faith. Do you see that? 
Paul says nothing extraordinary or over the top about their faith. He doesn't say that they have superlative faith or that they have superabounding faith. He says merely faith. And isn't that instructive and encouraging? For as with the Romans and their ordinary run-of-the-mill faith, so with ours. Our mere faith, powered by the almighty hand of God and the presence of His Holy Spirit, has the power to shape the world. It has the power to shape not only the world, but our valley and our town and the streets on which we live. That's what the power of a detachment of devoted disciples can do in Rome and, well, here. Family, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. For your faith is being reported in all the world. In just eight months, I have heard so many times from other pastors in this valley, from the members of other churches in Salida and Howard and Cotopaxi and BV, from people in our little mountain town at the coffee shops and restaurants and ice cream fountains and pizza joints and bike shops and gear stores, when they discover that I'm a pastor here, I hear words like, that's a good church. Those are good people over there. They're doing some pretty good things at that church. And I've heard that from the lips of people all the way in Thailand and Ecuador. Your faith is being reported in all the world, and I thank God for you. Do not underestimate what faithfully trusting and believing in Jesus and living that out in your ordinary lives, slowly plodding along, right? Can we just all agree to be plotters to just plot along? We so overestimate what we can do in one year as a people, but we so underestimate what God can do through us in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and a lifetime. That bell says this church has been here since 1887. I pray if Jesus tarries, it's here another 100 years to be a beacon of hope so that people can come to know Jesus. I'm not satisfied with just you. <laughs> I'm just not. You believe, you believe in Jesus. Most of the people in this room and on that live stream believe in Jesus. And there's so many outside this room that don't. And now that Paul has brought up this prayerful thanksgiving, he uses that to segue to the first of his two desires. Verse 9. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So note here that Paul is still elaborating on what is first in his mind and heart, which makes it of primary importance as he thinks about the men and women who make up his devoted detachment of disciples. That which has been a frequent and regular part of his prayers. Namely, Paul longs to spend time with them. 
He deeply desires to be face to face. He has an intense craving to be among them, an ache and determination to share their company. So heavy are they on his heart that he is constantly mentioning them in his prayers, always asking that if somehow God can find it in his heart and his plans and his purposes for Paul, he will at last, implying that he has wanted to do this for some time, succeed in coming to them. Now, we, we may think that this is a bit over the top for Paul. Constantly? Always asking? I mean, really? Because, like, you know, I've said that before when I've told people, like, I'm always praying for you, but I didn't mean, like, always. <laughs> and just in case there is someone in Rome like you, Paul invokes what almost sounds like a vow. God is my witness. In other words... It would be like us saying, hand to God, I swear to God, I constantly mention you, which is a big deal for a Jew to say because they do not take vows lightly. And this sounds like vow-like language. God is, he's invoking God. Believe me, I'm always talking about you. Maybe you're wondering why he so strongly desires to spend time with the Romans. Well, he he tells us in verse 11, I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So, so now a picture of his primary desire is getting clearer for us. He wants to get face to face with these dear people so that he may strengthen them by imparting some spiritual gift to them. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings at all, you might be thinking here of how he talks about spiritual gifts elsewhere in places like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans, or excuse me, Romans 12, well, yes, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. But I don't think that's what Paul is on about here. And the reason for my conclusion is because he's not specific about the gift. He's intentionally vague about the spiritual gift that he seeks to impart. Some spiritual gift, he says. And you see, I think Paul is actually displaying a kind of humility here when he speaks that way. He did not plant this church. He has not yet had the opportunity to go to Rome. So he's not acting all brash and cocky, assuming that he knows exactly what they need, despite being an apostle. Paul's going to wait till he gets there, spends some, spend some time with them, listens to them, gets to know them, so that he may then impart some spiritual gift. Maybe they need a gift of encouragement. Maybe, maybe they need an exhortation. Maybe they need a rebuke or a correction. Maybe they need someone to, to pray. Maybe they need the gift of just shutting the, his mouth and listening so that he can strengthen them exactly how and where they need strengthening. And how helpful is Paul's example for us? For how often do we presume when gathering with those we do not yet know to know exactly what spiritual gift they need? We think we know best for them. Before they've even said a word, just showing up on their doorstep. And instead, we should enter such times of fellowship in Pauline-like Humility, expectant upon God to reveal to us by his spirit the spiritual gift that we may impart to, to strengthen the faith of a new friend or a brother or a sister or a seeker of Jesus. 
And then something remarkable happens in Paul's thinking as he writes. I think he realizes something really important and that further reveals the beautiful humility of this seasoned apostle. You see, I think Paul realizes he's gone too far when he says, I have come and I'm going to come and I'm going to give some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And he realizes, whoa, wait a second. It is not merely that I, called as an apostle of God, will be able to strengthen and encourage you, but that you, as loved by God children and called by God saints, will be able to strengthen and encourage me. Verse 11. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, more precisely, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, apostles need encouragement too. Missionaries need upbuilding when they come home from the field. Proclaimers need strengthening. And the vision of connection and strengthening and encouragement and joy and refreshment that Paul has in mind, he sees it as a two-way street. You see, Paul is really familiar with this idea of encouragement. Parakaleo is the word that he uses, and, and he refers to it throughout his letters. He talks about encouraging others. But here, it's really interesting because Paul affixes a preposition soon to this word parakaleo, soon meaning together with, that, that we will mutually encourage each other. He desires to experience encouragement together with them. You see, it's something beyond mere words. It comes only from face-to-face interaction and fellowship and connection and relationship. He knows about the reciprocal blessings of Christian fellowship. And although he's an apostle, he's not too proud to acknowledge his need for that kind of strengthening. And I think that there is something quite important for us to see from Paul's desire here this morning, family. I think that it's a powerful statement that what he is describing here, private fellowship, connection, mutual encouragement from each other's faith is primary in his thinking before his desire for public proclamation. That's really instructive. And it's not just that he shares this first. He also shares this Last, when he writes in chapter 15, verse 24, of his hope to see them and enjoy their company. In chapter 15, verses 32, that he may come to them in joy and be refreshed together with them. This is heavy on his mind. It bookends the entire letter. Fellowship from first to last. This past Monday evening, Susan and I drove to the home of a very wise, older than us and smarter than me couple. Now, I'm, I'm usually kind of tired on Mondays. I, I describe it as sermon hangover. And Sundays are wonderful, don't get me wrong, but they're draining. And I usually don't have my legs back under me until Tuesday, so by Monday evening, my bum was dragging. But the moment that we exited our car, and started up the walk, this couple was there at the door welcoming us in. They brought us into the warmth of their home. They led us to their table on which was spread the bounty of God's 
provision, little bowls of salsa, green onion, and cheese, large serving bowls of cooked squash, squash and corn tortilla chips and warm bread, glasses filled with water, glasses empty but just waiting to be filled with what would be this complex and wonderful Bordeaux wine. Are you hungry? They invited us to sit and then they served us. They brought over bowls of steaming, hot, meaty chili, which we garnished with the contents of the bowls spread before us. And then the main course came. Conversation filled with mutual, <clears throat> mutual encouragement found in each other's faith. After eating, we moved to a sitting area and we shared stories from our lives, the, the ways that God had called us, the children that he had provided to us. We, we opened up about the difficult places that he had taken us as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers, as workers and followers of Jesus the King. And interspersed throughout was lively conversation about Abraham and Sarah and Paul and Jesus and preachers in our lives whose words had shaped us. And then back to the table to take in, if you can believe it, cherry pie and chocolate mint ice cream. And as the evening came to a close, I found myself deeply moved and even more deeply refreshed. And I told them so. You see, it was later in the day and now into the evening, but I was less tired I had been encouraged and built up. I had been strengthened. And I think they were too. And it happened because we shared each other's faith. They were sharing their faith with us and we were sharing our faith with them. It was not easy to go home. But bedtime beckoned. Do you see? Is it any wonder that this is Paul's primary desire? This, my friends, is what he longed for. A night like that with the Romans. This was the, that's the work of ministry. That's what it means to be a detachment of devoted disciples of King Jesus. Simply spending time with others, with each other ready to see how God will reveal what the needs are of those around us and then responding by imparting a spiritual gift that when the need comes clear, we mutually encourage and strengthen each other. And I find that that happens best around some really good food and drink. Amen? You know this is true and how glorious it is that it's biblical. Now, I don't want you to be unaware of yet another of Paul's desires, which should be our desire too. Verse 13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but I was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. John Stott. 
It is hard for us to imagine the sensations which the mere mention of the word Rome would arouse in first century people who lived far away in one of the provinces. For she was the eternal city which had given them peace, wrote Bishop Stephen Neal. The fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets and orders and artists, while being at the same time a home of every kind of idolatrous worship. Close quote. To which we could add, Rome was the home of every kind of humanly imposed social barrier imaginable. Barriers of culture and education, status, wealth, and power. Rome, even without Instagram and TikTok, was where the beautiful people and the wealthy people and the glamorous and intelligent and cultured people ruled. Without mercy and without apology. One author notes that Rome was the symbol of imperial pride and power. People spoke of it with awe. Everybody hoped to visit Rome at least once in their lifetime in order to look and stare and wonder, even if from the outside in. And along comes the Apostle Paul. <laughs> According to tradition, he was an ugly little guy with beetle brows, bandy legs, a bald pate, a hooked nose, bad eyesight, and no great rhetorical gifts. <laughs> Who did he think he was to have any impact to shape this kind of city? What did he think his message of a crucified, a crucified king could hope to accomplish in a place where power was applauded and proclaimed? Well, here's what we know about this man of no impressive stature. With absolutely every fiber of his being and might in the very deepest parts of who he is, with all he is, he writes in verse 9, in my spirit, in the deepest parts of me, I am a servant of the living God. And all of that internal energy of Paul is aimed with laser focus to serve this God and the good news of his son, King Jesus and this highly motivated, laser-focused, Holy Spirit-anointed messenger, this messenger who has been hindered time and time and time again, itinerary after itinerary on Expedia evaporating before his eyes so that his desire has been building and building and building, he is eager to publicly proclaim the good news of Jesus to Rome. He is like that middle linebacker, you know, hopping up and down at the mouth of the exit which leads out onto the field and into the stadium where the Super Bowl is about to be played, right? He's taut with emotion and drive, adrenaline pulsating through every muscle fiber, waiting to be released to what God has gifted and trained him and called him to do. That's the Apostle Paul desiring to go to Rome. Put me in, God! I am ready to proclaim the good news. Come on! And what exactly is driving that intensity? What is fueling this desire of Paul? Well, part of it is that Paul, Paul's heart beats to see people transferred from the darkness of the evil one into the kingdom of the light of the beloved Son. He wants to see Gentiles saved in Rome as he had among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 13, 
Paul had seen scores of people saved over three years in Ephesus. He had seen knees bend to Jesus in Macedonia and Achaia. He had watched hundreds flood safely into the arms of Jesus from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, chapter 15, verse 19, proclaiming this Jesus for more than a decade. And now he wants to see that kind of fruit in Rome, verse 13. And that's part of what's driving him. But that's not fully it yet. I think there's something more. You see, Paul is quite aware of the social barriers in Rome. He has heard about the diversity of its people and how so many are marginalized because of the character of its culture. The euangelion, the the good news of the emperor and the empire that the Gentiles of Rome are so familiar with is deeply flawed and incomplete. He doesn't see each person, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social status, as equally valuable and worthy. The field isn't level in Rome. That's not good news. It is criminally and morally unfair. And Paul is eager to bring a kind of good news, his good news, the good news of the Son of God that is truly and fully and perfectly good. Paul knows that the king behind this good news is calling for the whole world, every person, to trusting submission to him. His good news is the everyone good news because Jesus is the everyone Lord. See, Paul's good news, he says, is for the Greek, the sophisticated, the intellectual, the cultured white-collar worker and refined country clubber. And Paul's good news is also for the barbarian. The uncouth, the poorly read. You know, the NASCAR fan. (laughs) The football fanatic. Not that all those people are, you know, of extreme low IQ or something. That's not what I'm suggesting. Paul's good news is for the wise Those who have given their lives to knowledge have lived with intentionality and care, have made good decisions and benefited those around them. Paul's good news is for the foolish, for those who have made misstep after misstep, who never seem to be able to get their lives in order. The perpetual screw-up who always seems to end up in the shady part of town or on the wrong side of the tracks and is rejected. Paul's good news is for everybody. Paul's good news brings all those different kinds of people just like we have here in Salida, just like we have here at Grace, all different kinds of people together into one family. It makes them brothers and sisters, verse Thirteen, And Paul is at that gate, chomping at the bit, straining at the circumstances that have kept him away, eager for all to hear the good news for all. But we still haven't gotten at what is driving Paul. That's part of it, but it's... There's something deeper going on that is driving Paul and all this eagerness. And I think it's right there at the beginning of verse 11. It's one word obligation. I am obligated to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. Obligated. Now you should ask, what's that about? Well, to 
to read Paul in the original, to hear it a bit more woodenly, Paul is saying, I am indebted, or I am a debtor. The word is often used to describe precisely that, being in debt to someone else. One person owes something to another person. So what is Paul on about in saying that he is in debt to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish? What could Paul possibly owe them? Well, in order to unpack what I think Paul is saying and what is at, what is at the deepest part of his eagerness, I think we need to understand there are two kinds of indebtedness that can occur in this world. John, Brittany, would you come up, please? John, why don't you stand there? Brittany, why don't you stand over here on the other side of me? So, there are two kinds of indebtedness that we experience in this world. The first kind is where, say, John, who is a banker or a credit card company or just a good buddy who has a big bag of money, <laughs> and I come to John and I say, John, can I borrow your big bag of money? With interest. Okay, yeah, great. That, John's a nice guy. He's a good buddy. Of <laughs> and so I borrow this money from John, from someone else. I am now what? Indebted. I'm in debt to John. I'm obligated to pay back John. But there's another kind of indebtedness that doesn't happen quite as often. And it's this kind of indebtedness where John has something of great value, say a bag of money or something else, maybe it's jewels or some fine necklace or something, that he wants to get to Brittany, but he can't get to Brittany, and I can. So John gives this thing of great value to me in order that, in trusting that, I will get it eventually to Brittany. Now, I am under obligation not to John. Who am I now under obligation to? Brittany. I am indebted to Brittany. I need to get this thing of great value to her. It's just like when I was entrusted a number of years back with a, with a money belt stuffed with thousands of dollars to get to Ukraine, to Ukrainian pastors who needed those funds. I was indebted to them, John and Brittany. Thank you. Can everybody thank John and Brittany for helping me out here on stage? See, I believe that the indebtedness that Paul is talking about is the second kind of indebtedness. He has not received anything from the Romans that he must repay. That's what he's all, said all along, right? He's never even been there. But Jesus the King has entrusted him with the most valuable thing in all the universe, the good news of his son. And it is not the Romans, but Jesus who has made Paul a debtor by putting this treasure of inestimable worth into his hands. So Paul is thus in debt to the Romans. He is obligated to the Romans and he is eager to fulfill that obligation. He is driven by it. And he's driven by it because the Apostle Paul understands what it is to be saved. Paul knows what it is to have heard and believed the good news that Jesus saves sinners, among whom he said, I am first and foremost. And Paul knows that this good news is not for keeping, it's for sharing. And family, we might not be apostles, but if you are here this morning, if you are on that live stream, 
and you have heard the good news of Jesus and you have trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, even eternal life, if you have understood that you have been called out of darkness and into the light of the kingdom of the beloved son, then my friend, you are a debtor. You are a debtor to every man and woman and boy and girl in Salida and this valley that have not yet experienced what you have, whether they are Greek or barbarian, wise or foolish. They are not yet disciples and you are under obligation to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into light. Because it is the everyone good news of the everyone Lord. I wonder, you probably don't, but I wonder if you remember a little mantra that I taught you when I first came to grace that I think we need to use to remind ourselves this morning that we were nothing special. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anybody can get on in this. Anybody can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot. There hasn't been one nanosecond in all of my life where God has ever looked down on me and thought, ooh. <laughs> He's impressive. <laughs> and how God sees me is the way that I really am. And so without Him, without Him, there is no excuse for a being like me without him. And most of us came in here this morning knowing that already. But what's surprising and amazing is the second part. My future is incredibly bright. Because Jesus, worship team, would you come up? Because Jesus lived the perfect life I should have lived, and he did that for me, and he died the guilty death under the wrath of God, I don't want to die, and he did that for me, all he asks of me now, all he asks of us now, all that we can do is receive his mercy with these empty hands of faith. And when we do, God starts giving us the kind of future that Jesus deserves. And that's incredibly bright because it's all mercy. So it can be for anybody. Anybody can get on this, no matter how idiotic it can be for you if it's not too far beneath you. That's what this table is all about. It's reminding us of something that's been done. That's what news is, right? Something that's been done. And it was done by the only man who ever lived a sinless life and is worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory that we can render to him. So would you stand now and sing of the worth and worthiness of Jesus.